0: The following podcast contains explicit language. I think the effect will probably, in some areas, give ISIS some more propaganda. He called me up, he said, put a commission together, show me the right way to do it legally.
1: And if there are folks that shouldn't be in this country,
0: they're going to be detained. And so apologize for nothing here.
1: Welcome to TrumpCast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. TrumpCast is the show about the man whose contempt for the Constitution is rivaled in horror only by the fact that nine days ago he made a vow to uphold it. Yesterday morning, President Trump issued an executive order called Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States. Reporters quickly parsed the astonishing document and dubbed it what it is, a Muslim ban. Rudolph Giuliani conveniently confirmed yesterday on Fox News that the order was indeed a Muslim ban, and that he himself had been asked by Trump to show him the right way to do it legally. That is, show me the way, Rudy, to clean up this Muslim ban so we could pretend, sort of, that it's something else. Among the most disturbingly lying elements in the executive order is a line that asserts ex nihilo that the United States cannot and should not admit those who do not support the Constitution or those who would place violent ideologies over American law. Well, if we're deporting anyone who doesn't support the Constitution, I have a reality show host turned president who fits the bill. Today, we're talking to David Miliband, a former British foreign secretary who's the president and chief executive of the International Rescue Committee, a humanitarian aid organization that focuses on the global refugee crisis. We're going to get straight to it. And we are honored to have you on Trumpcast today, David, after what's bound to have been a rough day. Welcome, David.
0: Thank you very much. Very good to be with you.
1: Let's talk about that rough day. Tell us about it through your eyes. Maybe start with the news of the executive order and even the rumors of it on Friday night through the outcry and protests and up through the stay issued after pressure from the ACLU that allowed detainees to remain in the U.S.
0: People often say to me, Is this a tough time to be leading the International Rescue Committee? And my answer is always the same. It's nowhere near as tough for me as it is for people caught up in policies that are targeting them as potential terrorists or trying to undermine the dignity and basis of their uh, lives, whether trying to get into the U.S. Uh, as a legitimate refugee or whether trying to just survive in Syria, in Afghanistan, uh, in Somalia. And so yesterday was a very tough day, first for those who arrived in the U.S. and found themselves detained in handcuffs, having been through a severe security vetting system, to then finally find freedom snatched out of their hands was absolutely debilitating. But secondly, for the 60,000 other refugees who passed the security vetting system around the world and are now wondering, am I going to be able to get my place in America? And finally, for the 25 million refugees around the world, the feeling that the world's historically most generous humanitarian nation is turning its back on them, I think is a real blow and one that needs to be taken very seriously.
1: Yesterday in an op-ed in the New York Times, you cited Trump's executive order, which was a a body blow to um, American ideals, the one we know colloquially as the Muslim ban. You call this chiefly in order to suspend the entire resettlement program. You're thinking globally. Trump's executive order says resettlement twice, but to my eye untrained eye his order seems like a, not so much a suspension order as much as an affirmative dragnet geared toward finding potential violent criminals so active religious and national profiling rather than simply a pause to rethink resettlement
0: well it's an indefinite ban on syrian refugee entry into the us which is doubly galling given that syrians have been at the absolute epicenter of some of the worst war crimes that have been committed over the last, certainly in the course of this century, this since 2000. And, and secondly, they are fleeing in greater numbers than anywhere else. Five million refugees from Syria, the vast bulk of them in the neighboring states, not in Western countries. It's a media myth that it's the West that's bearing the brunt of the refugee flow. It's in fact poor countries. 85% of the world's refugees are in poor countries, not in rich countries. Mm-hmm. Countries like uh, Jordan and Lebanon, countries like Kenya, Ethiopia, countries like Pakistan. So I think, first of all, it is an indefinite ban on Syria. And secondly, there's a 120-day ban on all refugee entry into the United States, uh, which, of course, raises the question of what happens at the end of the review, uh, because this policy has been drawn up without the expert engagement of Department of Homeland Security, State Department, etc. And then there is the kicker, which is the ban on entry into the U.S., of anyone from the seven listed countries, whether or not they're a refugee or an immigrant or a green card holder, uh, or just someone who happened to have been born in Iraq. I am used to be in government and politics in the UK. Uh, There's a UK MP who's now a British citizen who was born in Iraq who now says he's been advised by his lawyer that he can't travel to the US for a conference. So this isn't, I think you use the phrase, affirmative drag net. Um, I I would say that the word ban is not just shorter, but actually, rather more accurate.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, I, 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 that makes sense to me now. Um, how effective is a ban like this as a counterterrorism or or police measure?
0: Well, I think that it is not just ineffective; it could have and will have, I think, perverse results. Probably the only good thing about this whole imbroglio is that it gives me a chance to come on shows like this and explain what the current refugee resettlement system is. Remember, America has the most severe and watertight refugee vetting system in the world. By the blessings of geography, you can't get to America from Somalia or from Afghanistan or from Syria.
1: It's literally watertight saltwater.
0: Well, exactly. And it's harder to get to the U.S. as a refugee than any other route. The refugee resettlement vetting process takes 12 to 18 months on average, up to 36 months for some. It involves the CIA, 12 other departments of state, biometric testing. It's a very tough and secure process, and that probably explains why there have been no acts of domestic terrorism on U.S. soil by refugees. And I think it's very important to make that clear that the Policy is founded on this myth. But secondly, and very importantly, the message that is sent by this executive order actually drags down the battle against extremism rather than helping. it. Let me just explain why. There is no greater propaganda gift for ISIS and al-Qaeda than to be able to say to Muslims around the world, look, the Western world led by the United States are turning their backs on you. Because the battle against extremism is a battle of ideas, not just a battle of military precision weapons. And we are, the Western world faces not just organizations that are trying to do damage, but movements. And decapitating their head doesn't mean that you end the movement. And the movement has to be taken on at the level of ideas. And one of the troubles with this executive order is it sends such a debilitating message for all the words that have been spoken about American or Western commitment to an openness to all faiths and uh, creeds and colors.
1: You focus a lot, uh, understandably, on Syria and the huge numbers of Syrians flooding in or, or aiming to flood into places in Europe and particularly in Greece, the epicenter of the crisis. How did this executive order Play abroad, has it already engendered both fear on the one hand and potential propaganda on the other?
0: Well, I think that it's engendered fear among refugees and horror isn't quite the right word, but um, a head shaking amongst governments and officials in advanced industrialized countries. Just to repeat, a lot of refugees have come through Greece in 2015, about um, 500,000. We've got operations there. Um, About 800,000 ended up in uh, asylum claimants, ended up in Germany and Northern Europe in 2015. There are still 45,000 people stuck in Greece in appalling circumstances where we're providing water and sanitation and other basic uh, support. So it's true that uh, amongst European governments there's been a reaction. But remember, most refugees are not in Europe or in the United States. Most refugees are in countries like Turkey, 2.7 million refugees. Countries like Lebanon, 1.6 million refugees. Countries like Kenya, 500 or 600,000 Somali refugees. Most of our work is actually in Africa. I mean, the the Middle East is about 25% of our work, just for the benefit of your listeners. Very important. There are 25 million refugees around the world, a world record, as well as 40 million people internally displaced by conflict. This is not people who are fleeing for economic reasons, economic immigrants or sometimes called migrants. I don't really like the word migrants, but economic immigrants. Uh, I'm talking about 25 million refugees, 40 million internally displaced, who are homeless because of political violence, because of war and conflict. Of those people, the numbers more or less are that fully 40 or 50% are in Africa across 17 African countries. And that's where most of our work is. But that you have got 5 million refugees from the Syria crisis out of the 25 million. There are still probably 2 million Afghan refugees in Pakistan. So uh, this is a, a global crisis that, in a more interconnected world, is tumbling onto the shores of Europe. And I think that it's very, very important to recognize that if we as wealthy Western liberal democracies do not have effective humanitarian aid programs and refugee resettlement programs that address at least the symptoms of these problems, then the problems will come to us and that's what Europeans have been dealing with and that's another reason why they are so appalled by the example that America has set because what this does is it empowers or supports or gives sucker to some of the far right movements in Europe.
1: Well that that brings me to this question. If it's grossly immoral, I mean you wonder if Trump, President Trump and his what they call the his unholy trinity, the men around him have seen the photographs of Syria or the the effort to get into Greece. Um, if this is not an effective policy and years ago and also not an effective policy for catching terrorists and it's immoral. Why? Why? What? Kind, I mean, do you see simple white supremacy in a policy like this?
0: That's not where I would go immediately. I think that there is a lot of fear about what uh, terrorism means. Remember, for our parents or our grandparents' generation, uh, the chances of being killed in conflict were uh, involved uh, volunteering or being conscripted for armies and being caught up in or being participant in a conventional war. And, of course, the chances of you or I being caught up in that are much diminished. We're living in a very peaceful time when it comes to the chance of wars between nations. Thankfully, there are far fewer wars between nations. One of the reasons to support the liberal international order that's been established since 1945 is that it has reduced war between nations. However, civilian casualties have gone up because of global terrorism. And I think that there is um, obviously uh, an additional element that the terrorism emanates from the Islamic world, or at least parts of it, and that's become part of this narrative. However, I think there's also um, a very important point that the refugee debate and the immigration debate get confused. And in my experience, uh, this happened in the UK in the 90s, it's happened in Europe over the last 10 years, when questions of immigration and questions of refugees get confused, you end up with very bad policy outcomes. And the reason is quite important. Refugees and immigrants bring forth different value judgments because refugees, the definition of refugee is someone who has a well founded fear of persecution. In other words, they are being forced from their homes. Someone who is an immigrant, an economic immigrant, is leaving in order to seek a better life, not to save their life. Mm-hmm. Now, I say it does, it's not that one is good or, but one, or that the other is bad, it's that they're different. And they obviously evoke different value uh, judgments because uh, the element of need in the refugee case, is different than in the immigration case. And I think it's very important not to somehow establish a ranking, but to understand the difference. And what's happening, it seems to me, in the executive order and in much of the political debate, is the issues of refugees and issues of immigrants are getting confused. And that I think, is at the root of some of the mythmaking that's gone on around this issue.
1: I think that's, that's really important to assert, because it did get lost in the soundbiting and tweeting um, yesterday. Your op-ed, this is the one in the Times, um, it's called, uh, and I know you don't choose the headlines, but Donald Trump's un-American refugee policy was unhesitant in calling the executive order banning refugees and immigrants... Um, you called it un-American. I will say Nicole Hammer and others have said that however nice a thought it is to imagine that this is un-American, it might not be consistent with American ideals, but this policy is tragically consistent with American history. Maybe you can speak a little bit toward America's hesitant participation in refugee resettlement even before the outright ban.
0: Well, that is a very interesting point. I mean, I would um, say that y- 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 it would be a longer headline, but um, the um, history of welcoming refugees has spoken to the best of American history, and the history of turning them back has spoken to uh, less good parts of American history. Yep. Uh, just, but, but obviously it's not been um, plain sailing for 200 years. Just to take one example, in 1941, Einstein, who founded the International Rescue Committee, my organization in 1933, in New York, where, where, which is still our headquarters, he wrote in 1941 to none other than Eleanor Roosevelt, begging her to persuade the president to allow Jews from Europe to come to America. And his appeal fell on deaf ears. And as you know, it was not until 1944 that America really allowed Jews in any significant numbers to come into the U.S. And uh, of course, by 1944, the large parts of the Holocaust had taken place. So it's right to say that there is a very mixed history in this. Some of the most moving placards at the airports yesterday were from Americans saying, and I'm more or less quoting, some of my family didn't make it 80 years ago. Have we learned nothing? And I think that that is a very potent and maybe reinforced by the unhappy coincidence of the issue of the executive order on Holocaust Memorial Day. I think that uh, there is, of course, a mixed history. But remember, this country was founded by people fleeing persecution. Yeah. They were seeking religious freedom. And I don't think it's unreasonable to uphold the best of American refugee resettlement policy as being an example to the world, not just in its numbers, um, although small in comparison to the total refugee population, nonetheless significant compared to other Western countries. And also the work that goes on at local level, IRC has 29 offices around the U.S., uh, we uh, show what it means to successfully integrate people into society. Remember Andy Grove, who founded Intel, was arrived in 1956 from Hungary, was resettled by the IRC, and went on to found Intel and transform American Lime, or global IT. Um, so the, the, the history is that people who arrive as refugees and are met by the IRC at the airport and given housing and help their kids helped into school, they become productive and patriotic Americans. And I think it's right to uphold that. And maybe in a funny way, look, I'm a foreigner. Obviously, I'm not a refugee, but I'm a foreigner who is living and working in New York, in the U.S. And maybe it takes uh, foreigners to shout out a bit that there is a, a global perspective to this. This is about. This says a lot about the country, the way in which refugees are handled, and there's some there's some very good practice to build on.
1: It was interesting yesterday to see, and I don't know quite what I make of it, the assertion over and over from Apple, Google, there was a point made about Steve Jobs' own father that it's important to welcome refugees and certainly immigrants um, on the grounds that they can become, they can make substantial contributions to the economy and the culture. Um, There's sort of three prongs on which to critique this, you know, execrable, executive order, one of them is that it's ineffective in preventing terrorism and preventing crime in the U.S. Another is that it's not good for the economy. And then the third is, is—is I think, what I get the sense is most important to you, which is just that it's a moral outrage, that this is a moral question. And I think that that is the affront that people were registering most yesterday.
0: I think that's a very good way of putting it. I mean, obviously, it's a moral uh, affront. That because this refugee question says a lot about us, not just about them. While it's true that refugees are people from far-flung places, many of us have um, a heritage that speaks to both my parents were refugees, so I may not look like a refugee, but I am uh, the descendant of uh, one. So there is a moral outrage, but there's more to it than that. There is, first of all, the practical implications on people's lives. Mm
1: -hmm. Secondly,
0: there is the propaganda gift to extremists around the world. Thirdly, um, there is the uh, sense that America is, itself is being changed uh, by this, and that the very idea of America is under question. And so, um, uh, yes, moral, but the danger, the danger of just talking about the morality is that you end up being what we call in the UK a vicar. Uh, the, the morality should not be left only to vicars, not only to clergymen and women, not only to um, rabbis and priests, uh, etc., but so morality matters. But if you um, make it only a moral and philosophical question, then I think we will we're in danger of losing some of the practical impact as well. And and the best argument is both a practical argument and a moral argument.
1: Um, thank you very much. Uh, my one last question is: What do you make of this stay that allows the detainees last night to stay in the U.S. for now? And also, where are the detainees, if you know?
0: Well, I, I think that. The information we have at the moment is that they are—they've been—they're not being deported, but they're not being allowed in. At least some, in some cases, I think they are still, uh, as we are speaking, still 12 in Chicago who haven't yet been uh, re- released. And obviously, the stay from the judge is welcome, but it's quite limited. It's only about those who've already arrived here. So it says nothing about those who are crowding into airports around the world or to embassies where they're waiting for, where they're asking what on earth is going on. And remember. The, the stupidity of this is that you're catching not just the 60,000 refugees who've been through the vetting system and are waiting to come here, you're, ca- you're, you're catching many more who have green cards, who've already been in the U.S. for between one and five years, and including 100 Google employees, etc., and you're catching people like this conservative MP who can't get in. I mean, there's a British born, uh, um, a Somali-born British Olympic winner, ms Sarah who's not allowed to come and do training the uh, absurdity of this shouldn't blind us to the seriousness of it. The absurdity of it should show the foolishness of it.
1: We've been talking to David Miliband, the president and chief executive of the International Rescue Committee. Thanks for joining me on the show, David. Thank you so much. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Jacob Weisberg originated the role of Trumpcast host. And one more thing before we go, Trumpcast has a live show coming up in Washington, D.C. on February 6th at the Hamilton Theater. Find tickets online at slate.com live. And I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thank you for listening to Trumpcast.